I would say that my favorite story that involves facial recognition is a company over in, in India that found 3,000 missing children in four days. That's an extremely powerful, powerful tool. And, you know, I don't think we can comprehend the emotion that that has to bring that back to the family that had lost those children. So, you know, without that technology running on those street corners, you don't find those children. So, you know, again, it's a balance there. It's what are you looking for? Um, that to me is a, a really important, a really, really important initiative. We're currently working on, you know, identifying people who are known to be sex traffickers, minors that are being trafficked across borders and things like that. You know, those are, those are critically important to, to our lives. I mean, as a company, that's something that we get behind very, very quickly. And so to me, that's a, an incredible way and in use of this technology. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a first-hand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space, so you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech, just like we do here on The Disruptors. The show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcast. Quick timeout. Do you exercise or want the best from your brain and body on a daily basis? I know I do. And if you do, you should check out Onnit's top performance line of brain and body enhancing, keto, paleo, and pretty much everything friendly supplements like Alpha Brain, MCT Oil, and Total Human. Prefer a solid grass-fed whey or a double caffeinated drip to go hard? What about a powerhouse set of probiotics? They got it all and the science to back up their formulations. Plus, you can get a 10% off offer just for listeners by going to disruptors.fm slash onnit with two N's, O-N-N-I-T, and using coupon code disruptors at checkout. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash onnit, O-N-N-I-T, and using disruptors at checkout. They have everything that elite performers need, mentally and physically, to be at the best. Are you looking to grow yourself and your bottom line in the process? Do you need help scaling, growth hacking, and marketing, or with fundraising and introductions? If you want to 10x your business and build towards a sustainable future, be that a startup or a Fortune 500 company, I love helping businesses change the world for the better. I've been a founder, built startups and seven-figure businesses, coached and advised dozens and more, and learned my passion and purpose is pushing entrepreneurs to succeed. If you're a winner, aiming big, willing to go hard, and interested in potentially working together to up-level yourself and your business, I'd love to chat. mattward.io slash coaching for more details. And now let's get on with the episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. We talk a lot about Minority Report on this podcast. Well, today we're diving deep into that world and much, much more. We've got Sean Moore on the program. He's the founder and CEO of Trueface, a computer vision and facial recognition company that's focused on making the world safer through facial recognition. Who'd have thought it? This one's a really fun episode, and today we're going to discuss the risk and reward of the social credit system, what Minority Report got right, and more importantly, what it got wrong, why Sean's not too worried about mass government surveillance. 
The reason I'm a little bit worried about that and think it's a, a slippery slope on the path to safety. Which monopoly scares Sean the most and why? How society should think about regulating facial recognition. <laughs> I see you. And ways to improve public discourse especially around some of the incredibly controversial topics today. There's some really, really important takeaways from today's episode, whether you're an entrepreneur or someone interested in the future of humanity. Sean's super excited about Beyond Me and much, much more, and we're going to dive into why you should be too. And now, without further ado, I give you Sean Moore. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So we've been trying to do this for a while, the, the nature of starting a startup. What's it like? Okay, no, let's not start there. Let's, let's quickly get a, a 30,000 foot overview of you, what you do, and Trueface before we get into it. Sure. So we've been, uh, Trueface has been, I would say, in R&D since early 2012. We started a company, myself and my co-founder, and the name of that company was Chewy, C-H-U-I. And we were working on enabling access control through facial recognition for the smart home in 2013 uh, through 2017. So we got our start in facial recognition by trying to understand how we can improve efficiency in people's lives and provide a higher level of security and safety. We took the knowledge from that and, and essentially spun out Trueface in 2017. And so with Trueface, we're focused on pulling intelligence from existing camera infrastructure, meaning identifying patterns. Uh, patterns are people's faces, their people's behavior, their age, uh, license plates, guns, things that, that we can capture and provide instant feedback or instant data back to a client. So it's really around building intelli- intelligent infrastructure within the bounds of our existing cameras that are out there now. If we build that kind of tech, how do we avoid becoming Palantir and then a social credit system and then a minority report? Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot that a lot of organization that would have to go into that. And, and frankly, I don't think we have it at the highest level. You know, I, I think the concern that we hear the most with facial recognition is Big Brother is eye in the sky. And it's largely driven from what's reported on over in China. And I think what people what people don't care to really understand is the social impl- implications of how how these societies operate in, in a very, you know, in a very different way. The the individuals over in China have a different outlook on surveillance, on you know social credit than we do in the United States, and you know more broadly in North America, South America, and Europe. So I think it's really critical to to dissect the, the society before placing blame on the technology. Uh, that's you know something that they've invested very very heavily in, and we just get to see the reports in the news. Now we're not living over there day to day, so we we truly don't know the implications. I don't think that the United States or you know any of those areas of the world that I just mentioned will ever get to that stage, nor would I ever want to see that. You know, it, it's largely going to be driven by the advancements in compute power and facial recognition accuracy in real time. Uh, but I, I frankly just don't see the concern. I don't see that you know as being an operator in the field. I don't see any company moving towards that, nor do I see any company wanting to move towards that. Um, I'm very friendly with all of our competing CEOs. And we have a very, very similar outlook on the market and outlook on how this technology evolves in, in that sector. So, you know, I, I understand the concern. I just don't think we're, we're societally built to accept that, meaning that, that we're not going to ever get there. You know, it's really not, not as much of a concern for me because I see how the benefits of this technology are, are being utilized. In, and that's far more interesting to all of us than, than surveillance. 
I would agree that we wouldn't accept it, but I also would say that I think it's impossible not to go towards and eventually get to it. So like let's play let's play the devil's advocate scenario. How many terrorist attacks do we need to incrementally go further and further? Well, every time the increment happens, people forget what the old norm was. We we forget when we didn't have to take off our shoes to go in the bathroom. We forget when we could smoke in the in <laughs> who was it um smoking in the smoking in the planes. Kind of things things come out of of fashion out of norm because they're forced out. 9-11 happened and things changed. I don't see how we don't go towards that slippery slope as people see the possibility of increased safety. Yeah, you know, again, it comes down to the structure of our government and the checks and balances in place. Um, now, there are organizations that lobby and petition against these types of you know advancements in technology. Uh, voices are heard across, you know, every level of the government on why or why not this technology should be used for surveillance and for surveilling people of interest. You know, I, I think realizing the the actual burden on infrastructure is is hard to comprehend. If we're actually trying to recognize every single person's face, you know, in real time across all of our cities and all of our states in the United States, it is a significant load on infrastructure, one in which we're absolutely not ready to take on. The other piece of that is you have to question why we would, why we would want to do that. You know, when, when you walk down the street, the, the government or whoever is looking for individuals don't, don't really care, frankly. Uh, what they care is that they have a list of 500 people that are potentially threatening to that environment or, or to that city, and they want to keep a look on them. Now, if everyone in the United States really was concerned about their privacy, they wouldn't be on social media. They wouldn't be shopping on the big websites. You know, I think it, 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 it gets pulled over our eyes because we see the convenience of it. You know, we get a like on Facebook and we're excited. We get a like on Instagram and we're excited. We buy something from Amazon and it arrives at our door that same day. You see a tangible benefit there. So you're willing to give up that information, well, either unwilling or willing to give up that information, but either way you're doing it. So you are absolutely, you know, your, your keystrokes where you look at on the internet is absolutely being recorded, stored. Uh, there's been recent, you know, recent announcements about how smart home devices were listening in on conversations. You know, we've all seen this, right? And, and it is something of a, of a science fiction type of future that we didn't think we'd get to this quickly. But this stuff is absolutely already happening. It's just happening without your knowledge or it's happening with your knowledge, but not to the extent that you realize. So, you know, I, I think we have, to, we have to take that back a step and say, well, what are we concerned about if, if I'm being watched on a city corner? You know, what, what does that mean to me as a person if my face is being recognized when I walk into a stadium? And, you know, once we kind of unpeel the, the onion there and discover what people are actually concerned about, I think the conversation is more fruitful because we understand then what limitations have to be in place with this technology. I'm all for regulation, but the regulators have to understand how this technology works. We end up getting another situation that happened with Facebook, where you've got legislators who don't understand what a social network is. So I'm all for regulating this technology, and I think all the all of my competing companies and CEOs are as well. It just has to be done properly, and, and we have to be you know we have to be a voice at that table so we can properly discuss and properly explain the limitations that we have with the technology now. So you know to kind of bring this full circle back, and I know I just spoke for a while, but the, the concern here for me is that people see this technology and they think surveillance. It's just frankly not the case. 
know, well, so let's talk about some of the pros. Let's get into some of the pros because there are a ton of pros. What are the awesome use cases of facial recognition? How does it make people's lives better? We all know about the, the benefits of technology that also harms us like Facebook. What are the benefits of facial? I would say that my favorite story that involves facial recognition is a company over in, in India that found 3,000 missing children in four days. That's an extremely powerful, powerful tool. And, you know, I don't think we can comprehend the emotion that that has to bring that back to the family that had lost those children. So, you know, without that technology running on those street corners, you don't find those children. So, you know, again, it's a balance there. It's what are you looking for? Um, that to me is a, a really important, a really, really important initiative. We're currently working on, you know, identifying people who are known to be sex traffickers, minors that are being trafficked across borders and things like that. You know, those are, those are critically important to, to our lives. I mean, as a company, that's something that we get behind very, very quickly. And so to me, that's a, an incredible way in use of this technology. You move into kind of the efficiency and the security piece, you know, knowing who's at a, who's at a, you know, a pro game, a pro sports game is something that's becoming more and more important. You know, with our, you know, un unfortunately with the climate that we have and the, the gun issues that we continue to run into, it, it, it's just a, it's a risk now. And I think people, you know, people are starting to, to see it more and more. And so if you decide you don't want to go to a concert because of, of fear, you know, are, is there a way in which technology can help mitigate that fear, that risk to you by being able to identify a potential threat? Uh, you know, that's another interesting, interesting way to look at this technology. Now, there's things like efficiency for access control or security and safety, you know, entering a building. We see that quite a bit. So, you know, it, it, there's different levels and different prongs to where this technology is applicable for safety, security and convenience. You know, 100 percent of international travelers by 2023 will be entering the United States with, with some sort of facial recognition system. So that's to ensure that the people that are entering are who they say they are on their documentation. It, I think it really is providing a safer environment, and that's one in which we deserve to live in. How much of the, the safer environment argument for the stadiums, et cetera, with the shooters, is people trying to come up with a more technical solution to a problem? So for instance, my doctor wants to give me a pill because my weight's too high and my blood sugar is out of whack. I could diet and eat healthy and exercise, or you can give me this little technical fix-all pill, which kind of doesn't fix the internal problem. So the, the shooter problem is something else entirely. Is it just putting a Band-Aid on that or trying to? I don't think it is. We're, we're starting to get a lot more involved in identifying weapons in real time at schools. And if you go back and look at some of the footage from the larger school shootings in the United States, uh, one specific instance an individual pulls a gun out in a hallway or in a stairwell, sorry, and paces back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for quite a bit of time, enough time that we could have reacted. Had our technology been running on those cameras, we could have shut the school down before a shot was ever fired. So I think it does start to act as somewhat of a deterrent, but also it enables faster reaction. You know, it's not pre-crime. We're not trying to get into preventative crime. That's, you know, that is minority report, right? So I think, you know, if we can aid in decision making, that's something that we want to do. Uh, Taylor Swift was using facial recognition to identify potential stalkers at her shows. So, you know, I, I think that we're, we're seeing interesting uses for this technology, but that to me is providing her peace of mind that when she goes to perform, that she's safe. You know, so I, I do think that there are, you know, I understand your example of the, are we putting a bandaid on it? But I think we're actually empowering people with data that they can make better decisions now about if there are threats. 
So let's talk regulations. You brought up the Zuckerberg example, and we, we know the regulators don't know jack about pretty much anything they're regulating. So what do we need to think about in terms of regulating facial recognition technology and AI in general along those avenues? What do we need to think about? How do we do it effectively? And what would those look like? It's a great question. Uh, if I knew the answer, I would be in that position in the government. <laughs> well, may, maybe it depends on the government. Yeah, true, true. So, you know, I, I think first and foremost, there has to be a separation of facial recognition. Like facial recognition encompasses a lot of the things. It encompasses one-to-one verification on your phone, and then it encompasses one-to-end, you know, verification of a potential uh, shoplifter in, in a retail environment. Those are two very, very different instances of how the technology can be used. So I think first and foremost, it has to be defined. It has to be defined in that vertical or in that silo in which it's being used. Because if you were to mass regulate facial recognition, then well, guess what? You can't use your phone to log into your phone, or you can't use your face to log into your phone. So you have to split those use cases out by you know what is the intention of the individual? Are they trying to gain access to something? Have they opted in? Have they explicitly given consent? And so once you start to, to break that down, I think that the legislation piece becomes a lot easier because if you're giving consent, then, you know, you should have access to use facial recognition in the way that you want to. Now, if it's facial recognition for something like a retail environment, there has to be some sign on the door that says this, you know, this environment is under facial recognition surveillance. And here's why, you know, it's not because we want to know X, Y, and Z. It's because they lose so much money a year with repeat offenders that are shoplifting and that are, you know, essentially building up that shrinkage that they have. So, you know, I think it just ha- there has to be transparency with how people are using this technology, and and that's a really big piece to to what we're doing. And I put a, a public statement out uh, a few months back about total transparency with our clients. So, you know, we, we greatly urge our clients to explain to their customers how they're using this technology, not just that they're using it, but how and why. Because I think that's what helps build the public trust and that's what helps build trust within the ecosystem. So, you know, from a, a legislative standpoint, you've got to, you really have to look at how the technology is being used and what disclosures need to be made. And then I think everything else, you know, basically falls into place. Um, but that's you know, the, the short of, of what could be a very, very long conversation. So with the bird scooters, they all said, make sure you park this nice along the sides here and do all of these things. They kind of put it off on the customers and the customers sure as hell didn't do any of that. How do you think about that in terms of tech companies developing software, developing solutions, not only facial recognition, but just in general, and then having clients or other people use that tech for different purposes? So I built the robot, but it's not my fault that the robot has a sword and killed someone. Right. <laughs> I think that's a, a problem that we've dealt with for a very long time. Um, it's the same, you know, kind of parallel to our guns bad or the people that use guns bad. So, you know, I, I think that when, when we work with companies, uh, we, we intimately get to know, you know, those companies, those purchasers, what they're using the technology for, how they plan to implement it, how they're going to store data, how they're going to encrypt data. So we have a, a we have really good insight into who our customers are and how they're using this technology. Um, I'm not sure if, if that's the same for you know the rest of the companies in our space, but that's one way we mitigate that risk. Um, so you know we can pull the plug at any time. We can say we don't like this. We don't like the way that you're using our technology. You're not abiding by the principles that we sent you that you signed off on. We're pull, we're pulling the plug. 
So, you know, if we were in that situation, we would absolutely do that. Um, we have not been in a situation where anyone's tried to misuse our technology. What do you think about the Google employees walking out about Google going into China or the Amazon employees protesting the facial recognition stuff? Honestly, I think for, it's great. For the U.S. government. Yeah, I, I think it's great. Um, you know, I, I think that I think that they should have a voice. Uh, you know, for us, we have an open forum about our sales funnel and who we're talking to. And if anyone wants to speak up, they absolutely have the freedom to do so. And we'll take that into a meeting. So I think that's great. You know, I think that you, we are building the brains to, you know, a, a larger societal improvement. And it's important that we take the perspective of, of everyone really and understand what, you know, what is, what is a driving factor to the reason that they don't want to participate in this or that they want to you know, walk out of the office and, and really break it down that way. You know, I know Amazon's been getting a, a lot of uh, negative press around their use of facial recognition with the government. And, you know, it, it's an, an interesting thing to me because we're seeing the continued adoption by the government of facial recognition technology. And I do know that, that are, there are a few instances where they're moving away from Amazon because of it. Um, now, you know, is that because Amazon has taken people's pictures that didn't agree to be in a database and are using that to scan against, you know, a, a potential like a criminal database? I don't know. You know, I, I don't have any insight into, into how Amazon has collected their data if they've done it appropriately. And so I think that's where the concern becomes is, is how are these companies collecting this data? How are they using this data? And are they creating a mass database that they can then resell? You know, I can tell you right now that we're not. All of our clients create and maintain their own databases. So we don't go to them with a database of, you know, 100 million people and say, hey, have at it. Go have fun. Find out, you know, find who you want to find. That's inappropriate, uh, in my opinion, because you didn't give anyone the option of, of opting into that. And it's not public information. So it, it just doesn't seem appropriate. Uh, so that that's how we've, we've tackled that is we silo all of our clients. They have to build their own databases of people that they're you know interested in recognizing. And uh, and then they keep it to themselves. We don't share, we don't you know cross pollinate or share any client databases with any other clients. How do you think about the difference between working with companies and working with governments? So this is kind of what we were talking about before. I would say companies will probably have a lot more restraint in terms of how they employ things, but governments inherently, if a government does anything, it's inefficient and it becomes more and more inefficient and larger over time because that's the nature of bureaucracy. We definitely see this with the U.S. And in terms of surveillance, in terms of having insight into people, just like Facebook, they want to keep as much data as possible and they want to have as much. So facial recognition and then ultimately not just facial recognition, but neural nets in terms of analyzing people's facial expressions to anticipate what they're going to do. How do you think about that future? It's, a, it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, I think surveillance has been around since the government has been created. Any government has been created. You know, it dates back to you know, the earliest civilization that they're watching for other people that could potentially uprise against them. So I think that, you know, the word surveillance, it long dates technology, really, or what we know as technology. I think the government has, you know, has an obviously, they have obviously a different use than private companies who are, you know, trying to drive ROI on revenue or return users, return customers, or even safety into a building. You know, we treat um, those conversations with the government that we have the same we would with any client. You know, we want to know how they're using the technology. We want to know what they're using it for and make sure that it is an appropriate use case. 
that we want to help support. So it's kind of up to the company. It, you know, it's up to who they're working with, and and uh, you know, we we've drawn a hard line about what we'll, what we will and what we won't do, um, and that's you know, public information that that I put out a couple months ago. So I think that the you know the government is already collecting information on people. Um, they have been forever. This is just another data source for them to use. It's never you know, in our opinion, it's not meant to be a single source of decision making meaning that it's meant to augment other information, just like at a court case, you know, you take in all the evidence that you need to make a decision. This is a piece of evidence or this is a piece of information to be used in a broader understanding of that situation. So again, you know, there are many use cases with the government that this technology can be deployed. One of the ones that we're working on is with the Air Force right now, and it's at, you know, for base security. So access control to bases, and it's to ensure that the people coming in are the right people. I think that's a great use of this technology. I think that there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of things that we want to protect on our military bases, both here and abroad. And to make sure that the right people are entering is, is something that is critical to those, you know, those continuing to, to maintain their, their privacy or, you know, the security of, of those individuals on that base. So I think that's a great use case. Again, I think if you're worried about being tracked, uh, you can't use a cell phone, you can't use a credit card. If you really sit down and think about how much information you give on in a day, it's pretty mind blowing. You know, I think about when I travel, I pay with my credit card to book the airplane. You know, then I use an app to book a hotel. It would take you know literally seconds to figure out just based on my credit card and my bank statements where I was in the world and what I was doing. So it's really not difficult. Um, you know, I think it. You know, for for just adding new technology to this. It's just a way to understand, you know, is this a potentially threatening situation when you are talking about surveillance? But again, there are many different facets of this technology within the government that doesn't that don't include surveillance. You know, it's it's it can be purely access control or purely certain individuals have access to a certain room in a certain building that if you don't have clearance, you can't enter. That's a great use of the technology because now we have a photographic record of everyone that came in there. And we'll know if anything was you know, misplaced or, or misused based on who came in. So, you know, again, I think it, it, it's such a broad topic or it's such a broad deployment. Um, you know, artificial intelligence as a collective collective industry, really, that's, that's where we get into human behavioral analysis. And we can take millions and millions and millions and millions of data points, billions of data points, and start to understand how humans move and, and behave. If you really want to go to it, it's like our behavior is all math. It's all probability. And it's probably based on the next hurdle that we see. And so when you start to map out human behavior, you know, you can maybe, maybe potentially start to get into predictive analytics based on, you know, billions of inputs. And, you know, we're definitely not there. It's not something that we're working on, but the, the technology is in a place, you know, where it could reach that in a few years. You think about neural nets and deep learning and machine learning all under the artificial intelligence umbrella. And the more information you feed it, hypothetically speaking, the better that in, the, the cleaner that infor, information is that you feed it, the better your output's going to be. And it's the same thing with bias when it comes to facial recognition. If you have c- clean and proportionate data that represents the population that you're looking for, you're not going to have bias on the output. You're not going to run into that. It's math. And so, you know, when you think about behavioral analysis, it's the same thing. If we get enough proportionate data for how people make decisions and behave, you can start to make some predictions just based on past events. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little crazy. It's also a little crazy if you don't have enough data. The Google algorithms that were identifying black people as gorillas, for God's sakes, because we right, them. right, yeah. it was horrible. I mean, it, it really is. And, and, and my question is, how does that get into production? Right? Where is the quality? Where, where is where is the internal check there? That you know, I I don't I can't actually fathom how that happened because there there has to be an internal check, and maybe it was just too early in the space. But there has to be an internal check there. You can proportionately see the balance of the data that you have in. And you, you would be able to know if there's going to be bias coming out of that algorithm. So, I mean, I think that was in 2015 or 2016. What, what's the state of the art today? So, let's say we've got a people in a crowd. What does it look like in terms of what can be done and how accurate the, the reporting is? I know right now, like in London, they were having some problems with uh, the cameras and trying to find criminals and offenders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it largely depends on camera infrastructure. So, you know, just because there are great cameras out there, it doesn't mean that uh, people have invested in that infrastructure at this stage. When you say infrastructure, do you mean the quality of the camera or the placement or both? Both, both. You know, traditionally, these cameras were not put up around, especially a city like London, to really recognize faces in real time. They were, they were positioned there to help either solve a crime or, you know, catch a criminal that was doing something on the go. So they, they weren't really meant for reading faces and that overhaul of camera infrastructure. You know, we're starting to see it happen, but it's a very big investment. That's why I, I personally don't think 3D cameras on a broad level will be implemented as quickly as, as some would have thought because of the cost. You know, if you've got how many thousand cameras, I think the, I think Atlanta had 15,000 cameras running for the Super Bowl. You know, you, you, you to re- if you have to replace those cameras, that's a significant hardware cost. And then you have to have the processing power to understand that information that's being fed into that system. So, you know, I, I, when, I, when I hear that, what I think is an efficiency, uh, I know in Atlanta, they were having people watch all these feeds. You're not going to catch anything. Um, you, you know, you're, you're just not going to. There's, there's not enough brain power to watch 15,000 camera feeds and spot the one person that's doing something mischievous. It's just not, it's not possible. And so if we can aid in that, you know, if we can say this looks like someone doing X, Y, Z, now you can put someone on that to, to start to investigate it further to see if, if there is an action that needs to be taken. I'm, I'm going to be in Berlin next or this month to talk about what was happening at the Oktoberfest last year. And they hired, I think it was 20 some super recognizers to sit in a room and try and pick out, uh, you know, people of interest. So you're you're doing facial recognition. You're just, you know, a couple steps back. You're having people that that have this unbelievable talent of recognizing faces, study potentially, you know, threatening faces, and then try to pick them out of a crowd and low lighting and bad angles and and things like that. So you know, I trust technology. I, I trust math at that stage more than I do the human eye. I would say for the faces, yeah, once you get down to the body language and secret service type of stuff, I think it's a little different. But I think computers will probably get there. We're just not quite there yet. I'd agree with that. Um, I think, it, you know, faces at this point, we are reaching very, very, very high levels of accuracy. And if you think about it, today is the worst day that we'll ever have in terms of accuracy, you know, across, across the board. And, and some companies and, and ours included are score, scoring 99s on some of these benchmark exams. So you're, you know, you're reaching a critical point of, of accuracy. And, and the more data that you know, we can train models on that is proportionate to the population, the, the closer to 100% we can get that. 
What does your work make you think about the future of autonomous vehicles and AI, especially in the visual side of things? Uh, autonomous vehicles, I think, are, are very interesting. I think autonomous trucking is what's the most intriguing to me. If you can send a truck from LA to New York uh, and not have to work in eight-hour shifts, and you can do it you know, efficiently and securely, that to me becomes very interesting. I rode in a uh, in a well, somewhat autonomous vehicle in in, in uh, Las Vegas not too long ago, and you know I think there's a lot of work to be done there, but it is it's very interesting. Because if you can start to get cars to talk to other cars, to talk to emergency vehicles, uh, to talk to the streetlights and things like that, it's just efficiency. And, and I think, you know, based on investment over the last year and a half, two years uh, in some of these, you know, these new types of, of ownership structures of cars, it just shows you where even, you know, the BMWs of the world are thinking about how owning a car will evolve with our generation. So I think autonomous driving, autonomous cars is absolutely something that's here to stay. The, the risk there, and, and we've, you know, we're in some discussions about this too, is identifying the passengers and ensuring that they are the right people in those cars and you know, ensuring that the, for, for me personally, it's ensuring the safety of that system running the car. Because if you can sit out, you know, if you can sit outside your house and hack into someone's car, uh, it, it becomes a very big risk. And so, you know, the connectivity, while yes, it is, it is truly amazing, is also a very big risk if it's not protected right. Absolutely. Yeah. Drive it off the bridge. It's, uh, there's definitely some dystopian ones, but there's so many more positive outlooks. I want to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Design Crowd. This is the company that designed the podcast cover art for the Disruptors. Also Fringe FM before we had to change the brand name because of those UFO crazies. If you go to disruptors.fm slash design crowd, that's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D. You can check that out and tell them we sent you. That helps us with making the podcast more sustainable. And it'll definitely help you because you'll have designers around the world competing to create the best graphic design projects for you, whether that's a logo, cover art, anything, you name it. That's disruptors.fm slash design crowd. What technologies are you most excited about? And why? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I'm I'm very excited after I saw the IPO of of one of the plant based uh, burgers recently. I think those two companies are are doing incredible things uh, in that industry. And you know, I, looking at how Burger King and White Castle have reacted uh, is is truly remarkable. They're both taking on. You know, I think it's, it's it's Impossible Burgers, and the other one is the one that just IPO'd. You know, for for those two companies to take those those ideas and the you know that business model on is something that excites me because it shows a, a transition or a shift in mindset. And I think when we shift in mindset as a culture and a society, uh, a lot new thing, a lot more creativity opens up there. So I'm very excited about what those two companies are are doing right now and what they'll continue to do from a, a technical standpoint. Truly, the advancements in an artificial intelligence, uh, I think, are are what will propel our our society to advance a lot faster than anyone had expected. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. You know, I don't think anyone does. I I think there absolutely are concerns, and you know, I think that if if the operators and the owners and the creatives and the thinkers don't take the time to sit back and and recognize that not all of this is good, then 
you know, we get to a place where we don't want to be a lot faster. So, you know, it's, it's difficult for me to project out, you know, what does five to 10 years of evolution in artificial intelligence look like? But having been in this industry now since 2002, I can tell you that in the last seven years, it's unbelievable the advancements that, that have been made in facial recognition or object recognition. So I, you know, I don't see any slowing down uh, with China investing billions and billions of dollars in it. Now, our, you know, our government wanting to invest a lot of money in it as well. I think we're in that exploratory phase. Um, you know, there is market adoption, but for this to be a truly powerful technology, there's still a lot of things that have to be understood and figured out, and there's a lot of restrictions that have to be in place. You know, data transfer becomes very, very big. You know, I, I think the the biggest concern to me is that when you start to put everything online, the propensity for that to be hacked or leaked is so much higher. And you know, that goes to your autonomous driving question. If cars are online, you know, if all of our I mean all of our information is already online, but if it's kept in a you know easier to obtain environment, then the risk is significant. And if there's, you know, if there's routes from that information into you know, the credit system in the United States or, you know, your banking accounts. I think that the more you start to tie these things together, it becomes a risk if it's not done properly. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a, there's a lot of thinking that has to be done there. It becomes a risk and it becomes a honeypot as well. Definitely what people are aiming for. In terms of the Impossible Burger, are you more excited about vegetarian type solutions as a meat replacement or clean meat, lab grown meat? I'm more excited that they were able to take this, you know, from what I've seen, non-mainstream idea and get public buy-in. So we're, I'm more excited about the, the population shift of exploring a, you know, meatless alternative. So it's not necessarily about the meat production facilities or, or that. It's more of the mindset shift, which, you know, I know from from growing up in the Midwest, it's steak and potatoes. I went to school in Texas; it's more steak and potatoes. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not I'm not siding one way or the other. I just think the societal shift in the mindset is is truly incredible. And you know, you're seeing buy-in from some of the largest players in the meat industry. So it, it's it's just a, I think a, a very cool time to to witness a a mindset shift. I feel like with a lot of the, I feel like we'll be seeing a lot of these. Remember, I was talking to someone a little, a little ways back and I was like, what would it be like to have worked your entire career at Coke or Pepsi and kind of know you were the marketing guy selling diabetes for years? I mean, you want to get on whatever new solution you can because you're, you're doing something beneficial for people. I mean, I could see, I hope, I hope we can see that happening in a lot of areas. Oil companies jumping to renewable. Basically, they're jumping for anything that can help you sleep at night. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that with those large companies like Coke, Burger King, McDonald's, uh, you know, they were mass producing for different times in in our political history. Um, You know, there are reasons to mass produce food during times of war. There are reasons to mass produce food, you know, to fulfill a population's need to eat. So I, I think that now with the understanding of the implications of what this food is doing to the human body and the human mind, you know, we're seeing people think creatively and think differently. And that's, that's really important to the evolution of, of our society. So I know your background before this was more on the content and mobile side of things. Where, where do you see that space headed now that we've kind of reached or seem to have reached peak smartphone and certainly peak iPhone? 
That's a great question. Um, I remember in 2011 and 12, we were trying to, to pitch some of the largest media companies in the U.S. on building mobile apps. And they told us that it was not needed. They were never going to need mobile apps for their content, uh, which had changed about three years after that. <laughs> so, you know, I think that, that they're, they're, they were still a little stuck in their ways. That space to me is, is very interesting. I think that the mobile phone space is, you know, very innovative. It, it is providing a, an exceptional level of convenience to us, you know, being able to order something on your phone and have it delivered uh, increases laziness, but it, it could also increase productivity. Uh, depending on on why you're doing that, so you know I think that iPhones, uh, other smartphone providers are going to have to start thinking uh, about engagement beyond what they've already put out. Because, and, I, and I'm sure they are, but you know everyone has an expectation now of what a phone should do, and if they don't con- continue to exceed that expectation, you're going to wonder why you don't switch to the other one or the other one. And then prices will go down. So uh, you know. I have no idea. I haven't operated, you know, in that space for for seven years now, so I haven't had a, had a bunch of time to think through it. But you know, I personally am trying to to use my phone less. I leave it at home when I leave the house now. You know, I, I think that we're going to start to see uh, people move away from that always on, always connected mindset over the next five years when we realize the emotional strain that it has on us. So they're going to have to figure something out when you're not always wanting to be on your devices. Yeah, I mean, Steve Jobs wore like one shirt, so he didn't have to make decisions. Every time you decide not to look at your phone, it's a decision. It's uh, yeah, it's definitely challenging. We talked, we talked positives. What technologies scare you the most, and why? I would say robots, <laughs> because they're they're you know when you when you start to physical robots, uh, when you start to program these units, we can call them these robots with what would be decision making power. They have the strength to cause damage. Um, they have the power or the force to cause damage, and so I think that that's that's a little concerning. You know, it, it plays into to, into my industry quite a bit because that would be the the brain powering it. But I think that that's a a little you know to me a little sci fi thriller type of of technology that we're we're looking at and we're seeing you know some advancements in in robotics uh, very quickly. So. I don't know enough about it to say that it truly is scary. Um, it's just something that I've observed that that concerns me a little. And you're in LA now. What's the most interesting stuff you see happening out there? I think the the last mile transportation has really been, you know, an incredible disruption to the way people travel here in LA. I was in San Francisco when when they dropped them all in the streets there, and there was just public outrage about it. Um, and then moved on to, to LA to, to kind of see the same thing happen. To me, that it, it it really is an incredible way for people to get you know from point A to point B very quickly and with least like least resistance. You're not sitting in traffic. You know, LA is a city known for its traffic. You're not sitting in traffic. Uh, you've got an option to take a scooter or a bike, and you can do it for you know pennies on the dollar. So I think that that has been kind of the the most interesting thing that I've seen over the the, last, the few months that I've lived here. There's some stuff in in media that that I'd like to get more involved with, um, just to understand how brands are thinking about advertising or marketing to consumers. But I would say the last mile transportation and just the, the way transportation is working. That the company Fair, I think, was the 
the startup that raised the most money in LA and, and they're changing the process in which the millennial generation purchases cars. So you can essentially monthly subscribe to a car uh, for a couple hundred dollars. So I think that the transportation industry is, is becoming increasingly interesting to me. Because it was incredibly inefficient. Yeah, it's transportation is very interesting. It's also huge. Mm-hmm. And I would like to see travel. I mean, general, tra- I travel quite often for, for work. And so that process is still one of the most stressful things you can put yourself through. Um, <laughs> so I would like to see some efficiencies or some changes in that process. What's the most stressful part? I think it's the waiting. It's the impatience. It's you're in a you're in a you're in a mass place with all the, with a bunch of people that are either trying to rush to get somewhere. You know, they're arguing with someone about not getting on a flight. It's just a pit of anger. Um, <laughs> and and so when you're surrounded by all this negativity, and then you're waiting in line, your flight gets delayed. You know, I, I, it kind of goes back to human expectation when you're expecting to board a plane at a certain time. And there are these disruptions uh, throughout, you know, the two hours before that. It just builds on you, and then you're sitting on a plane for, you know, a couple hours. You get to where you're going. There's just so many steps in which you could you could meet disruption or meet, you know, some form of, of hurdle. Uh, and I think that it's it's difficult to deal with if you're doing that every week. Yeah, it would be it would be terrible. Where do you think, in terms of automation, we're headed? Do you think more jobs, less jobs? Any thoughts on the process? Yeah, this is a, a great debate. You know, everyone was worried that when Uber and, and Lyft came out that they were going to eliminate taxi jobs. You know, to some extent they did, but they also employed thousands of other people. And some of those, you know, individuals who drove taxis are now driving for those two companies. So I, I think with, with any innovation, you're going to have a reduction at the tail end of, of that employment bracket and you're going to create a new one. So, you know, automation, I do think that, yes, it will displace people. There are people that won't have the skills to or won't have acquired the skills previously to take those new positions on. But I think it's, it's what needs to happen for the advancement of society, truly. You know, if, if you say, no, we can't, we can't automate this position because it's going to knock out 100,000 jobs. Well, instead of saying no, let's say, well, how can we create 200,000 new jobs now with this technology, now that we know how to use this technology. So I'm all for it. I just think that, you know, we need to reframe that, the concept of it, of it removing people from the workforce and, and really think about how does this, how does this create an opportunity to, you know, to create a new subject matter in school where we're focused on autonomous engineering, you know, stuff like that, where, where it's more of an opportunity than it is a, a consequence to advancing technology. If you had to add one subject to school and take one out, what would you do? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, I would add some sort of financial management, bookkeeping, paying taxes. Uh, I don't think, you know, I, I personally got no instruction on how to do, how to manage healthcare, how to manage, you know, personal taxes. It's hard. It's horrible as an entrepreneur too, because it, the, the system is not built for it at all. Not at all. So I would have really, really liked that bit. <laughs> you know, how to be an adult, really. <laughs> you should you should share that with five hundred. Yeah, I should. Uh, that, that would be a great class to have. It it truly would. You know, taking class out. You know, I, I'm not sure there. I haven't been around the curriculum for quite some time, so I don't know what what's been added. I think if meditation is not taught in schools or yoga, that that they should absolutely be taught in schools. Meditation, probably more importantly. Um, I, yeah, I think some concept of mental health 
should be added. And I think some concept of, you know, being an adult and being able to, to pay your healthcare and to understand what healthcare plans mean for you, um, how to pay your taxes. It's just something that you didn't have to do growing, you know, most people don't have to do growing up on their own. And when you get thrown into the workforce, you're expected to know it right away. Uh, And I just think that they're, they should teach you. Our education department should teach us that. I listened to a podcast one time and the guy was redesigning the tax system for a specific county in California. And he essentially got it down to a single piece of paper. If you're a W-2 employee, you get this pre-populated tax form, which has your income, it has how much you're probably going to owe, and you can just file it. It saved so much time. It saved so much money. Everyone loved it. And it got shot down because QuickBooks didn't want to make it too easy for you to do your taxes or whichever the HH&R block, whichever one it was. And it's, it's insane how there are things like that that are just so convoluted because that's where people make money. It's the same thing with healthcare. I signed up for healthcare in Switzerland. My wife is Swiss. In five minutes, we looked at here's the high plan, here's the low plan. Everything is legally mandated. Is a lot of, is a lot of the problems there just the, just the US model? I, I think it's, it's ripe for disruption. You know, I do think that, that foundationally, it needs to change because it is so complicated. And if you can't hire an advisor that can walk you through every stage of it, you're, you know, you're missing out on some money. You know, you're missing out on some pot- potential benefit on that plan. So yeah, I just think that from a foundational you know, perspective that there are absolutely issues there. And we're not, again, we're not taught it. So we're not taught what to look for. We're not taught how to do that. So you rely on some, you know, a friend of a friend who says his cousin is a financial advisor and can help you or a tax accountant and can help you. So I just think it, you know, it, it would be very important to educate people on that. Or a blog post with affiliate links where you think you're getting good information until you find out that they're just going for the best option for them. Right. Right. Oh. Incentive, right. It's what's the incentive for that person to recommend that provider or, or that, you know, assistance. It all comes down to incentives. Speaking of, how do you think about incentives, specifically who to take money from when you do have a company you're building that in the wrong hands could be problematic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very important. It's very, very important that when you raise money, you know, when we specifically raise money, we are partnering with people. Um, You're entering into a legal agreement, uh, one not too dissimilar from marriage. Where, you know, you are, you know, you're now talking to these individuals once, twice, three times a day, uh, and, and they have more insight, you know, than, than maybe your parents or your girlfriend, your wife, whoever it is. So it, it, it's, it's very important that you align from day one. And I think that, you know, being a 22 year old in, in Silicon Valley, you're told if you raise money, you've made it or you've made it to the next bracket of success. And that's just, you know, that's, it's a, a really problematic mindset to have because you're going to drive people to take money that they shouldn't be taking uh, just to take money, just to raise money, to have, you know, that notch on their belt. And I think that's, you know, it's difficult to navigate at that young of an age because when someone says, we'll give you two or $3 million, $4 million, you know, you're just excited. There's so many emotions that run through your head about what you could do with that, how you can you know, grow your company with that type of money. So, you know, I think having, having run a company now for, for seven years, I've gotten to, to grow within that mindset. And now, you know, we are really, really diligent about who we want to partner with on the investment front and what that means strategically to the company, 
I can't say enough good things about the investors that we've brought on. Um, they've been incredibly helpful from a personal perspective, uh, as well as a, as, as well as well as helping the company grow. So we're we're very uh, you know very very diligent with how we go about finding those people. Yeah, it's tough. There's there's no such thing as a free lunch in almost all situations. Right. Yeah. You know. Again, I think you just said it goes back to incentives. It does. You have to make sure incentives are aligned. The first conversation that you have, otherwise, it's a waste of time. You know, or or you're going to get yourself into a potentially toxic relationship with you know someone that that has a a different end goal for for you. You know, it, it is critical that you take the right money and not just any money. Yes. What sci-fi movie or book do you think we're most headed towards, and why? You know, I do hear uh, the Minority Report reference fairly often. I, I again, I don't think pre-crime is something that we're we're really headed towards, but I do think that Hollywood has some insight on predictability into what fu- the future of technology looks like. I don't know how they do. They hired they hired like ten futurists for Minority Report. Apparently, that's how they did such a good job is they went through all the futurist planning session strategies to figure out what it's actually going to look like as as much as you can. Yeah. I mean, they did a great job. <laughs> you know, they did a scarily good job. It was before its time, that's for sure. You know, I, I don't I don't watch a whole lot of, of movies, so I, I don't have a good reference point there, nor do I read much science fiction. So, you know, I, I think one of the books that struck me, I think it was called O or Oval uh, or Circle, Circle, Circle. I don't know if you read that book or even saw that movie. Um, I read the book. That book struck me as something that hypothetically could happen, and and you you can see the the character who is. I, I, have you read the book? I don't know if you. I've seen the movie trailer. Yes. Okay. So the the young the young woman who's the the kind of main character in that. You can see how the societal pressure or the pressure of being in that business forces her to make a decision that I don't know if she would have on her own, but it it, it appears to be free will. So you know, I think that that. I think that there is potential for stuff like that to happen in this very high pressured society. That would be very concerning to me. So if we are going towards that, it, it's not something I would want to be part of. You mean like keeping up with the Joneses? Uh, yes, but in a in like a, a full transparent. So you know, without ruining anything, that the goal of that business is to get people to go full transparent and to wear cameras twenty four seven, so you can have twenty four seven insight in their lives and. They can start to control and manipulate what you do because oh, you mean Amazon. You mean Amazon? <laughs> Without <laughs> saying it, <laughs> people, people are people are so happy to put the Alexas and the Google Homes into their houses, and it's just like you guys just don't get it, do you? I would give them away if I was Google or Amazon. I would give them away. Jesus, just an Amazon Prime membership alone is enough for them to automatically make it worth their money. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I definitely do not own one. But uh, you said it, not me. <laughs> oh, I, I am very happy to say it. I've said it plenty of times before. The the there's, I mean, everyone knows Facebook's scary, but Facebook also really doesn't have much of a value proposition. It's more like you're on the boat that's sinking and just waiting for something better, but there's not really something better yet, so you're stuck on the boat. I I, I don't know. Yeah, I think they're, and I know they're going through a restructure based on their last announcements. It'll a be a restructure. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what the future value of Facebook is. They do have a lot of information on people, on their friends, on images of people at parties, at events around the world. So I don't know what they can, you know, how they can tie that together. uh, If they can, it may be valuable 
you know, outside of just purely selling your information for profit. Just wait till the EU comes up with a new law that you have to show people information upon logging in and say, do you want to delete all your information? That, that That's kind of all they would need to do to, to kill Facebook. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, we're definitely headed towards an interesting future. If you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. Before you tell them where to find you and a little bit more about you, what would it be? I would say do your research. Uh, do your research and, and think against the common thought or the public thought. I think we're inundated with information and no one cares to go fact check it and actually understand the implications of that information. So I think when we live in this always on society of, of news just being you know put in front of our face, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? This guy said this, this guy said that. You know, it, it creates a reactive culture, uh, one in which we don't sit down and analyze the information. We just take it at face value and go tell someone else about it. So I would say it's very important to do your research, uh, check your sources, and, and really start to, to take what people are telling you and think the opposite side and see if you can make a case for it. It's funny. I was listening to a podcast and they were bringing up the fact that 10, 20 years ago, it's like when you were talking to someone online, everyone seemed smarter than you. Because they had so much extra time, you would get the you would get whatever it was, and then you'd go and respond several hours or a day later, and you have this time to be considerate. Now it's just a quick response off of your phone when something pings you on Twitter, and we have gone very far in the opposite direction. Yep, yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, it really is. So yeah, I think the information's out there. It's up to people and, and the effort that they want to put in to actually understand, uh, you know, what's true and what's not. Amen. Where uh, where is best place for people to find you? Uh, they can find some info about our our web our Trueface on www.trueface.ai. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and at Twitter. Uh, Sean P. Moore, I think, is the Twitter handle. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today, Sean. Hope this has been fun, guys. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, a deep dive into the interesting future and where we're headed. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.